Hey, everybody. My name is Justin Murphy, and this is my podcast. It's called Other Life because it's where I talk about all the things I don't get to talk about in normal life. So if you're into it, you should definitely subscribe. And if you'd like to talk to other people interested in what I'm interested in, or ask me questions or request future topics or guests, please just follow the link in the show notes. Finally, I just want to give a huge thanks to all the donors and patrons. I could not keep this podcast running without financial backers, so I'm very grateful. And I would just say that if you enjoy this podcast or my blog or my videos, please do consider signing up to give a little bit of money each month. It would really help me grow out this project, and it would mean a lot to me. So thanks a lot. Now on to the podcast, over and out. All right, people, what's happening? Good to be back on the live stream. Let me know if you hear me and see me okay. If there are any problems, let me know. We have here waiting in the wings. I see you there, Akira. I'll bring you in in just a minute. Let me uh, warm up the crowd for just a little while. I just a few minutes ago, right before I came on here, I put up a link to the based mansion, which is happening. It's official. It's it's really happening. On February 28th in Los Angeles, I'm going to be renting a mansion and there will be room for about 20 people. And yeah, if you want to come, uh, there's a form to fill out on the, on the internet. It's I, I literally just finished it. So I didn't even add it to the description here yet, but it should be the most recent tweet on my Twitter. And uh, yeah, I did a very kind of communist pricing structure. So if you want like a private bedroom to yourself, there's only a couple of those available and that's like big money. So only like rich people can afford that. But if you're willing to crash on a couch or sleep on a floor or bring a sleeping bag or whatever, then it'll be uh, super affordable two nights, a whole weekend thing. And the only requirement really is that you got to be working on something interesting. That's all. I mean, I'm not going to be like super judgmental. Uh, the only other requirement is unfortunately I'm not going to be welcoming like anyone who wants to be like totally anonymous or pseudonymous. I can't, I can't, I just can't protect that. Uh, there's going to be video and audio probably at least here and there. So if you're the type of person who is afraid of being doxxed or whatever, um, then this event is not for you. But if you're just a random person on the internet who's has some interesting ideas or wants to talk with interesting people in my orbit, then, uh, you are more than welcome to come to the based mansion for a weekend on Friday, February 28th. That will also be the weekend or that'll be the Friday that I'm going to be doing a live podcast. It'll be the first ever live show of the other life podcast in LA. And there'll be a little party afterwards also for uh, the based uh release of the paperback. So yeah, it's going to be epic. Uh, that's end of February. Yeah. So check it out on my Twitter if you want to be a part of that. Just live a minute ago. You heard, it, you heard it here first, folks. All right. I don't want to keep Akira waiting too long. Uh, I'm going to bring him in just a minute. If you don't know who Akira is, uh, I don't know him well, but I've interacted with him a, a good handful of times on the internets over the past couple of years in the kind of weird theory accelerationist spheres. Uh, he seems like a cool dude. And we're going to learn more about him now. All I really know about him is that, well, he's kind of into accelerationism. I believe he's catholic leaning man although we can clarify that with him uh, and he 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 runs or co-runs or uh he can clarify that for us but a uh indie music label i think you could call it called love crypt and uh they seem pretty active like he's been doing it for some time it looks like and it looks like he puts out a lot of music by a few different artists and yeah i've been i've been seeing him and love crypt around and you know it kind of represents the type of 
just kind of weird niche creative Indian internet project that I'm really interested in. And so I thought he would be a good candidate to bring on the show. I mean, I've been meaning to invite him on anyway, but then I really started thinking lately about how I'm going to pivot the show a little bit towards, I really want to focus on people with actual ongoing projects, not just totally random people. (laughs) And although there'll still be a decent dose of totally random people probably. Um, Yeah. I want to learn about how people are running their projects, what they're trying to do, how they're doing it, what kind of results they're getting. And yeah, I just want to learn more about the kind of most interesting creative people running like truly independent intellectual or creative projects on the internet. So uh, yeah, I think Akira and Lovecrypt are one interesting example of the type of project that I'm interested in. So without further ado, let's meet Akira. All right, Akira, you are now on the stream. Can you hear me and see me okay? I sure can. All right, excellent. How are you doing today? I'm all right. I hope you'll forgive my lack of cam. Oh, it's okay. Whatever. Some people don't like to show their face. Whatever you want is fine with me. Have Have you done many podcasts before? I've done a couple. Um, For a while there, I was trying to do my own kind of group podcasts type thing where we I would get a bunch of people in a group call on YouTube and then stream from my YouTube account talking about various subjects, but that got kind of hard to control. <clears throat> Excuse me. Kind of hard to control. Okay. Um, although I am still interested in maybe doing that, it tends to be hard to stay focused I like you make it worthwhile for the listener you know because if you have like six or eight guys who are all in there just like talking then that's like every podcast and right well, uh, I notice uh well anyway enough about that right uh, thanks right. for having me on yeah totally uh no I hear what you're saying though it is hard to podcasts are weird it, it's easy to start and anything that's really easy and quick to start is hard to really make it worth something in the long run. But yeah, for me, big, yeah, the yeah, yeah. No, I definitely well. understand that. Uh, for me, I think it's a matter of just kind of figuring out over time, like where your interests converge with the actual interests of people listening, you know? And I think you, you can, you can just kind of figure that out over time. If you're, if you're really interested in the form and you're committed to, to working on it over time, you can find, you can find your niche, you know? Yeah. 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 Well, well, um, I suppose it is your podcast, so I should let you lead with, uh, with whatever you want. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, with. sure. Well, um, how, so are you super anonymous person, uh, or what? Uh, I prefer to remain anonymous online. It keeps a lot of things much simpler. Right. Well, can I ask you like rough basic questions? Like where are you calling in from roughly? I would not be comfortable answering that question. What about like even region of the world or something? Uh, ditto. Okay. Fair enough. That's why I was asking. I'm not trying to pry. <laughs> uh, I understand. Okay. Um, uh, it is a bit of a burden to maintain that kind of wall, but mm. uh, I don't do it for my personal benefit. I think that um, in the past... Uh, I've said and done some things which would be very harmful to people I've associated with who are not anonymous. Okay. Um, and I, I don't mean objectively harmful, although, you know, who can avoid doing objective harm? But I do mean, like, you know, if 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 such and such a thing came to light and then the wrong person interpreted it, then it would be, oh, man, 
Yeah. You know, it would be a big thing. I get that. Okay. Uh, well, and that's, that's not the only reason. Um, being anonymous has a, a, I think it allows for what you write or what you make to speak for itself. Um, or it, I, I get, it doesn't necessarily do that, but it prevents what you write or make from being polluted with who made it. Right. And, uh, despite the fact that like I do have an identifiable name online and like a brand or whatever you want to call it. And right. so those things are associated with what I do. Right. Uh, that's a little bit easier to control um, as somebody who's interested in uh, presenting like the holistic creator created experience. Right. Uh, that as makes sense. Yeah. Right. Right. I get um, that. Okay. Then why don't we jump right in then to what it is you work on and what it is you're all about? Why don't you tell us about Lovecrypt? I'd like to know a little bit more about what is it and when sure. did it start and what, what's kind of the mission? Yeah. Well, Lovecrypt started around two and three quarters years ago. I believe it was April. Um, when, uh, Nishiki Prestige approached me and asked if I wanted to start a label. And it, it was so out of left field that I almost didn't know what to say. I mean, and like, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a go-getter kind of guy. I'll, 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 I'll going on you with anything if it sounds like a good idea. And I'm like, sure, dude, I like content. I like music. You know, I like, I like, um, accelerationism and, and the aesthetics of the future and all these sorts of things. And so Nishiki comes up and he's like, I'm, I, I've decided to start making accelerationist music and, uh, here's some of the stuff that I've made and I want to know what you think of it. And I was, I was so floored by the things that he had made. And I was just like, I, I had no choice but to start. And so now, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it wasn't really my idea at all. I'm just, I, I was, I was just kind of along for the ride and, you know, um, you know, Nishiki is not on the scene anymore. And, uh, it, it kind of just like, I got grandfathered into running this whole big project. And are you a musician yourself? I do not make music that I publish. I am, I could probably pass for, uh, if music is a language, I think I could probably order a coffee (laughs) and have a brief conversation about simple things. Gotcha. Okay. uh, my music education, unfortunately, stopped as a teenager when uh, my family moved out of the n- neighborhood where I was great friends with this woman who uh, had a house full of like three pianos and she would give lessons. But then when, when they got expensive, she was like, oh, I'll just I'll keep teaching you for free anyway. And I was just so excited and so she was, she was just getting to like, um, I don't know, the Roman numerals, uh, for I think chords or something, chord types. I'm not even sure what those are. Okay. Uh, but that was the end of my formal music education. And Interesting. so you're a person who's not exactly an expert in music, but you must have some taste in music if you are oh, absolutely interested yeah. in, yeah. Running a label. I'm like, I'm, I'm like, uh, I, I, I'm so 
I'm, I'm really entertained by this thing that I don't completely understand. And I mm. don't think I'm entertained by it because I don't completely understand it. I just, I'm kind of, I've been kind of lacking on that. And so recently I've been trying to, you know, make up for the lost time and, and, and learn an instrument and get, get right on the theory and so on, because uh, I don't want to be a sued. Right. Okay. So um, uh, uh, an indie music label that's been running on the internet for three years. I mean, in the internet, world in internet time three years is pretty long honestly that's like it's a long you know time. three years three years feels like impressive staying power for yeah. you know the, yeah. this type of project so let's break down what you're doing and how does it work i think there are a lot of people i talk with a lot of people who are musicians or interested in music and being more independent and creative on the internet it'd be it'd be cool to understand kind of the anatomy of a, a kind of little indie startup such as your own how many how many artists do you have or have you had from the beginning to now okay well i think we have around 54 releases and the average artist puts out i think two but we have one artist who's put out like 10 uh and a release is a song or an album an album um and when you say the average artist does two releases you're saying two albums of how many songs yeah our retention is actually really good so if somebody makes an album for us one time uh and they come back to me out of nowhere a year later and they're like hey i made another album i'm like wow you know why is this person coming back okay cool uh so i would say we probably have anywhere from one to two dozen oh we definitely have more than a dozen i think we have around two dozen artists uh in total maybe maybe a little more than that um but the 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 thing that i'm really excited about just in general is the fact that people come back to release again on yeah. Love Crips. Um, and so the way that it started out was, you know, I, uh, I mean, Nishiki gave me his album, right? Mm-hmm. And I couldn't open up with just one album. So I had to go out and kind of dig for another artist somewhere who was releasing, who had, who had music to release, right? It doesn't have to be made for Love Crypt. It doesn't even have to be recent music. It just has to be enough music to be an album that could release alongside Nishiki. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the, the, the first probably two uh, year and a half was probably the hardest period because at that point I was me and well, Nishiki was doing a lot of this. He did much more of it than I ever did, but we were reaching out to people and saying, Hey, this is a cool label. If you have music, you should release on this label and right. giving them reasons. And so eventually I kind of, I kind of got the idea that, well, I mean, people are putting their blood, sweat and tears into this stuff and we release it and it doesn't always sell a whole lot. And when it does sell, that money's just going into like the Bandcamp account and it's not going to the artist. And so pretty early on, um, when thankfully I was employed, uh, I got the idea to immediately pay somebody when they sent me music to publish in accordance with how much time they'd spent on that album. Hmm. And so um, I started doing that and uh, people were so thankful and overjoyed to say like, wow, like you've already, you've already paid me money. Like I thought I was going to have to wait and see if people bought it and, you know, kind of check back. And it's like, no, actually like, you know, I, I value your work. So it was kind of like an advance or just a gift on your part? Uh, I consider it 
their due. So and you're paying, is, okay, so it's not related to their future sales. It's just an outright in advance no. payment. Uh, in the event that their future sales is greater than the money that I pay them, I will send them that amount too. But I don't think to date anyone has actually crossed that threshold. Okay, so then is is this a project that uh, kind of burns money? Like you spend your personal money on it yeah. to keep it going? Yes. Yes, okay. It absolutely burns money. Okay. How um, much? A lot? Or what are we talking? It isn't that much money <laughs> that it burns. However, okay. um, it is a it is an amount that you would need a job to keep paying people with the... And it's not it's not like... It wouldn't make my rent difference, right? It wouldn't make it. It, it wouldn't break the bank. Um, okay. But I do consider it a fair payment for the amount of time that somebody spends making an album. Well, that's um, cool that you can do that. It's, it's nice that you can afford to do that. I mean, have you given thought to trying to sort of rearrange things to make it profitable or at least break even? I have thought of that, but I don't want to introduce profit motive into the production of art. Okay. Um, time and again, I see art that is made for an audience become bad because profit motive comes into the equation. If you've ever watched a TV show that had a great first season and a great second season, and the third season was really meh, and they kept going and it got less watchable as time went on, Odds are second to none that the producers got involved and they said, we need more viewers and we need more of these things and less of those things because people don't get those things and you need to make it more relatable. And I could pull out a dozen examples and I'm sure the audience could pull out a uh, gross more. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a tale as old as time and, um, you know, I pirated a lot of music in the past, and I think by now uh, I'm I'm pretty close to having repaid artists in general for right. all of the things that I stole from them. No, that's cool though. That that's cool. So h- how do you how do you work? Like when when you release a song, is there are there certain kind of marketing routines you do, or what is the system behind it all? Uh, well, currently the system is not very good. I post it on Bandcamp and I make a tweet. Uh, When I had more time, I would upload it to other media like YouTube, Mm -hmm. SoundCloud. Um, I'm currently in my queue is uploading all of the music that I currently have to CD Baby in order to get physical production and distribution to Amazon, Spotify, iTunes, and so on. Okay. And I had a I had a different thing that was doing that, but it really it was it was awful. Don't use don't use tracks with two X's. If if any of you have heard of that and need to do what I'm doing, it's bad. It's not good. You <laughs> you can't code an entire distribution platform in JavaScript. Um, so okay, there there are plans to have a wider and more real distribution stack and that would be a lot easier if i had anyone else doing this with me Mm. um i was recently on campbot's podcast and i announced that i was looking for a manager like 
Uh, and it's awkward because I'm not positive I could also pay the manager in addition to paying the artists. So, uh, well, yeah, I guess ideally you'd get an application from a really good manager who also had a, some ideas to make it all profitable or at least break even to pay himself. I mean, yeah, if if uh, if the man if if they were like a real manager of real music, then I would totally pay them. Uh, probably on a contractor basis. Um. And we can start talking about profits. But on the complete other side of that, like, I'm not sure how much uh, marketing I need to do because often the artists do a lot of their own marketing. They mm-hmm. post about it. They tell people about it. They, they send it to publications to do reviews. Um, I've had a couple publications randomly do reviews. I've had I've had bloggers on Twitter do reviews of stuff, and it I keep getting new people sending me messages in order to in order to uh, publish their albums. So as as far as the intake of new music and the output of music is concerned, I don't think we're doing that badly. Yeah, sounds like it. Sounds yeah. like a sounds like a fairly thriving little little musical machine you have going, which is awesome. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I've been impressed by how, how long it's been around. Like I've seen, I remember first seeing someone kind of repping the love crypt label years ago. And then, yeah. And then I see it every now and then still. And the other day when I saw it before I, th- I thought to invite you on, I was like, it's actually seems like it's been around for a while and it seems like remaining active, which is kind of impressive. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's cool to look under the hood and know know how how you do that all. So, are you the only person who does the work? Are you? Is it a one man show or what? Uh, there's not much work to do. They, send they do the artists do all their editing themselves. That's all on their yes. end. Yes, I don't do any audio manipulation at all. I simply put the stuff on the site and I make my tweet, and that's hmm. all. Um, it's 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 a pretty it's a pretty tight system. Um. And, uh, yeah, if I were, if I were of the scrappy content producer variety, um, I would, I would also keep the system tight, but, uh, all of that extra stuff I was talking about, like putting it on YouTube and doing podcasts through the YouTube channel that has the music on it and putting it on SoundCloud and so on and so forth, all that stuff I would do if I was actively like my livelihood was invested in the success of people watching and doing music stuff, but like, you know, making videos out of the music and all the other stuff, it takes so much time and I have a job and I have a million other things I'm trying to do. So at this point it's, 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 you know, the labor of love, right? Yeah. That's awesome though. That makes sense for sure. Someone wants to know it's a bit random, but someone wants to know uh, what's your workout (laughs) regimen. My workout regimen is, also fairly simple and tight. Um, I do all of the large compound lifts. So squats, deadlifts, uh, overhead dumbbell press, not a barbell press and, uh, pull-ups, uh, weighted pull-ups. If I'm in that good of shape, um, why dumbbell overhead and not barbell overhead? Well, two reasons. The first reason is that barbell presses tend to be very rough on your rotator cuffs. 
which is a which is a very small muscle internal to the mechanism of the shoulder, which is very easy to damage if you have bad form and very hard to repair. Um, so for that reason, I don't do bench pressing at all because I actually inflamed my rotator cuff some years ago. And if I go back and do bench presses today, uh, within a within a week or so, my rotator cuff is hurting again. Um, so the overhead press, uh, otherwise known as military press, um, doesn't have that specific flaw, but it is still a barbell press, and so there's a uh, danger of that. The additional benefit is that because you're lifting two separate weights, the stabilizer muscles of each shoulder have to work separately, and you actually develop more diverse shoulder muscle by lifting two separate weights than you do by lifting one bar when you can kind of offload the stabilization of the weight to like your strong arm, right? Um, So I usually go into the gym. I do three out of those five exercises. I think I listed five. Yes. Um, And optionally a fourth and a fifth um, smaller kind of more focused exercise, like like a seated cable row for the back muscles that doesn't don't get worked with pull-ups or a, a weighted dip um, for the focus on the lower pectoral. Um, and the other, the other one that I typically do is I grab a 45 pound plate with both hands and I, from, from resting, like holding it down in front of myself, I keep my arms extended and lift it over my head and then slowly move it back down to resting. Um, so, you mean, so you mean like... Yeah, yeah. Uh, not all the way back, just uh, s- straight up and down. And so that really emphasizes the uh, posterior deltoids, which... Um, and, and, and again, the stable stabilization muscles in the shoulders, which don't get extremely worked out in the rest of the regimen. Um, and so... Each of those lifts is a compound lift, which means it works out several muscle groups at once. And it also means that if you stick to those, you can do a lot of work in a small amount of time. Um, and they're all very real lifts. Like they're not, they're not something you would never do in the wild. Uh, cool. So, so it, it develops functional strength as well. Cool. Have you ever done steroids? I have not. Although I did a room with somebody who did steroids for a while. Yeah. yeah. How was that? It was intimidating. Um, the body dysmorphia set in pretty quickly after actually right before the steroid use, there was body dysmorphia of I'm not large enough and I can't get larger and I need to be larger. And then during the steroid use, it was, I'm going to get as large as I possibly can. Uh, because I, because I must, um, so that was a little bit uh, worrisome. And I wow. never saw the aftermath. I never met them again after they stopped. Interesting. Um, speaking of steroid use, I was just reading a research paper about how eating raw eggs has the effect on your endocrine system very similar to a common steroid cycle now i don't really so that's like the rocky movie used to eat the raw eggs yeah or the the gaston diet you know when i was a boy i ate four dozen eggs every morning to help me get large like that's not a meme uh so eating raw eggs really has an extra effect on building muscle it does um 
And people will say that you get more protein out of a cooked egg, which is true. But you're not eating the raw egg for the protein. You're actually eating it for a very specific... Uh, I'm not sure if it's an amino acid, but it is. It, it does have an effect on your endocrine system. It might be a hormone. And when you eat 12 of them, you have an equivalent effect on your endocrine system as this steroid, which is not testosterone, but I think it has the effect of boosting testosterone, um, without all of the side effects of doing steroids, right? Because they're just eating raw eggs. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I wonder if the, I, I'm gonna look into that. I wonder if that's really true. I would consider I would consider doing twelve raw eggs every day for yeah. like a month. Yeah, I would. Uh, um, it's hard. The guy who does it, he's a power lifter, and he has it with heavy whipping cream and milk based. Or sorry, not milk based. I think it's uh, it's either a milk or I think it might be milk and egg based protein powder, um, and possibly some other stuff. I don't think I'm dedicated enough to do an entire dozen of raw eggs every morning. However, um, I am interested in, and I have lots of friends who swear by the carnivore diet. Mm. Um, and it's nose to tail carnivory. So you eat organs, you eat uh, cartilage and all the fat. And you, the important thing about the carnivore diet is making sure you get plenty of animal fat. Like it's not about the flesh meat, right? It's about the fats because the fats are what your body synthesizes into the pro, uh, the hormones that your uh, endocrine system needs to thrive. And the big the big meme about oh dietary fat makes you fat. Well, that's like that's an elementary dietary error. Yeah, like, yeah. Dietary fat does not correlate to bodily fat. Your body yeah. your body loves fat because it can break it down very easily into amino acids and make the proteins that your 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 body needs. Um, right. I would consider carnivore diet if I was rich. Like if I could afford to eat nice steaks every day. Like, oh yeah, yeah. Then I would well, do it. As it stands currently, I would have to eat like a lot of fucking ground beef, and I don't think I could handle that much ground beef. Yeah, right. Um, steak is not the core of carnivory. I would say I uh, the target fat to protein ratio is two to one. So you actually end up eating a lot of bacon and um supplementing your missing macros with liver and other organ meats because there's there's a bunch of uh miscellaneous that you need that don't okay. come in flesh meat right they come in organ meat um okay. and so speaking of ground beef though that's a great way to get your like basic protein macro in um and a great source of saturated fat is butter so if you are a if you have simple tastes and you like simple recipes, I know a guy who ate nothing but ground beef and butter for months and he is in the best shape of his life. And so I'm thinking, well, if I'm in a pinch for a meal, I can make some ground beef. I can mix in some butter and then I can mix in some raw eggs and mm. I will be set. And you know, after this podcast, I think that's what I'm going to do. Nice. You're going to drink the raw eggs like in a cup. By no, the side, I'm, or... I'm mixing them into the ground beef and butter. But then they're going to cook a little bit. After it's been cooked. Oh, so let it cool down and then mix in raw eggs? Uh, maybe not let it cool down. I like it warm. But I think then it'll it'll kind of cook a little bit. I wonder how exactly Just raw slightly. it has to be to get the steroid Just... effect. What's that? I'm going to guess that the protein doesn't denature at that low of a temperature. But the steroid effect that you cited in the beginning, that maybe yes, that requires some kind of... It's a result of the uh, specific protein that is present in the raw egg, which only denatures at a 
oven or a, sorry, a stove level temperature and not necessarily a hot food level temperature. Cool. Sounds good. Let me know how that goes. If it, I if will. Yeah. You get a steroid effect. If that's validated and replicated, I would uh, seriously consider. So I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to gain more muscle, I think. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I kind of do fear that like, as I get older, I, I do fear that my testosterone is kind of decreasing. I think like in a way that's, I can, in a way that I can like notice and feel, I kind of, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a necessary consequence of aging in men, unfortunately. Yeah, um, yeah no, I know. But uh, it's weird to kind of like notice it and observe it. And I'm kind of like, uh, yeah, I would counteract that with something if I could, but yeah, I don't want to do can. the whole, like, uh, I don't want to take actual steroids. No, don't do that. They, um, they actually increase your estrogen. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the, the older you get, the harder it is to create new muscle tissue. So I would suggest that you get as far on the muscle train as you can while you can, because I'm kind of having the similar problem where I worked out a lot in college but I stopped for a while and I have to get busy again because if I don't get busy, then I've effectively made a ceiling for myself. How old are you? I'm not going to answer that question. Like thirties or forties. I'm not going to answer that question. Wow, dude. I think you're, I think you're like the most uh, rigorously anonymous person I've yet talked with. Eh. It's <laughs> no, a simple set of rules. No, actually zero HP Lovecraft was even more so because he used the, like a voiceover technique. Oh yeah. I couldn't find a good uh, voiceover that I liked, so I had to settle. <laughs> it's okay. I think you're. I, I don't. I, I think you'll be fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> cool. So, all right. So let's go back to the music then, and uh, yeah. or kind of your larger, sure. your larger interests. Although that was a very worthwhile uh, tangent on a physical fitness. <laughs> Thank you for right. that. Right. Uh, hey, whatever the people want to know, I will ask. Yeah, I'm, I'm um, free to take any questions from the audience. Yeah, yeah. So we'll 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 meander somewhat randomly based on. Uh, on questions, but uh, what is accelerationist music? And would you say is 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 that how you would describe the the label, or like what is the stylistic center of gravity of Love Crypt? That's how I would describe it in its inception. But I don't think that it is currently an accelerationist label because I'm not sure that accelerationism has a coherent. Uh, a, a, I would say unqualified accelerationism has a coherent aesthetic and I'm not sure that it even has a room for a coherent aesthetic without further definition. You know what? Um, Real quick, a a quick tangent. You just reminded me, were you in the, the Slack years ago, the weird cave Twitter, Rhett Twitter Slack channel? Were you part of that or no? I wasn't very active there, but you were in it. I was present. I thought you might have been. Yeah. Okay. I was. Yeah. You don't remember anything about that? I remember that it very quickly dissolved due to disagreements. It was pretty wild. For people who don't know what we're talking about is uh, you might remember Rhett Twitter and then Cave Twitter. These were kind of momentary collective phenomena on Twitter a couple years back. There was a, there was a very dubious private Slack channel that <laughs> contained a bunch of kind of left accelerationists and then right-wing accelerationists. And it was, it was pretty interesting. And then like all these things always do, uh, it kind <laughs> of ended abruptly with schisms and antagonisms. It was great. Um, it was interesting though, for sure. This is like where I met a lot of people on the internet who I, who I currently know it probably you, this probably when you first came on my radar and, and among other people as well. Mm, yeah. Well, I'm shocked at how, merely being interested in a set of ideas has 
put me so prominently in this scene that I had previously thought was about producing good ideas, you know, and having things to say about ideas. Mm. Uh, and, so walk and, us through that. When did you first kind of uh, get on the internet in a way that got any kind of traction? Like when did you first get a following on Twitter or wherever you did get a following? I would say I started to, I, I think I crossed one K in 2017 or might've been 2016 or a uh, late, 2016. Ooh, I don't know. Yeah, I think it was late 2016. Um, and that was just talking to people who were actually having ideas at that point, like, you know, outsideness and friends. Um, How would you and, describe your, like, your kind of personal intellectual brand? That's a very good question. Um, Currently, it is, I would say it was a right accelerationist with the caveat that the right accelerationist um, codification of concepts, beliefs, and imputations has not yet been completed by the expert on the subject who is insurrealist. Hmm. And so uh, he and I are in deep and constant discussion about the particulars thereof. And okay. its its final form has yet to manifest in a document. But hmm. the, the central tenets and postulated realities. Hmm, how do I say what I'm trying to say here? The central tenets and the... Okay, I'll just leave it at central tenets. Mm-hmm. Are not yet a capital T thing. I think that there are lots of people who are adjacent to that, and they sympathize more with that than any other brand of accelerationism. But so you, you, are you writing something then with Insurrealist? He's writing it. I do not trust myself to write anything coherent on the subject because everything that I wrote on the subject happened before I had my big conversion event uh, early last year. And going back and reading it, um, I realized that A, it wasn't coherent. It didn't make sense. It It was a lot of argument from aesthetics and not actual reason. That's my cat. Nice. <laughs> yeah, he's 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 playing around. So tell us about your conversion event. Oh, it was really something else. Uh, I was talking to my friends and offering them some support in a trying time, and I knew that they were Catholic, and I was raised Catholic before I decided to leave. Um, and so I was drawing on my knowledge of the faith that I had developed at a young age and I was telling him something, something very simple. Uh, let me, let me, let me just pull this up really quickly because I have the conversation transcript in this document, the account of my conversion. It's on medium under Akira. Oh, cool. I don't, I I never saw that. You should absolutely read it because I spent a lot of time working on it. 
uh, he was actually talking to me about a crisis of faith. And I, I simply told him, so he was, he was having issues because he believed that he was fated to destroy everything he touched by saying the wrong thing to the wrong person and setting off chain reactions of misery and pain. And he thought that he spread bad luck and he was considering leaving forever. And I simply told him that all things are possible through Christ and witches, demons, and devils alike fear him and are powerless towards those in his light. He told me, God bless you, my friend, you are right. And you are setting me right when I have been going crooked on the path. And I told him because I believed that I was playing a part. And in that part that I was playing, the message that I was telling him had come from God and not me. So I told him, I'm just relaying the message. And I look at the message that I've sent him and I read it to myself. And I say to myself, maybe I am just relaying the message. And he reacts extremely positively. Like that seems to have done it for him. That, that, that helped him a lot. That healed his worries. And, and, and it, 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 I don't know if it solved his crisis of faith, but in that moment, it, it assuaged his worries about his faith. And that was so effective. And it was so in line with, if God did exist, and he was working through me, it would have had exactly the same effect as it did. And I realized that I had only relayed the message that he needed to hear from some greater intelligence that was working through me in that moment. And so uh, when I realized that, I also realized as a result that, uh, and this, this is all covered in the article that I wrote because I was trying to explain this like instantaneous realization of like six or seven different huge cataclysmic truths, right? Everything that I had been interested in and researching and trying to do on my own for years as an adult who could have, who, who, who made his own decisions about what to research and what to do. And all of that stuff was related to everything else in that category, not through my interest in those things, but through God. Fractals, sophisticated mathematics, physics, evolution, biology, uh, cosmic horror, the existence of superintelligent, invisible, malevolent entities, the mysteries of the universe that seemingly have no answer because of the uh, like the halting problem, the incompleteness theorem, these fundamental boundaries on physics and mathematics that I was really interested in figuring out. Like order, what is order? How does order function in the universe as opposed to how entropy functions in the universe? Um, the single common axle around which all of these complex mechanisms rotated was God, their origin in God. 
And when all of those different parts of this machine of complex, like the entire order of the universe, all of those pieces of it that I had expressed any interest in, when all of those parts came together and they aligned perfectly such that there was a, a, a circular hole in the middle of each one, because they all had one thing in common, and, the, and, and they started to rotate in synchrony around the fact that they were interrelated through God. The entire assemblage of all of those concepts made much more sense than looking at like a car's AC unit and looking at a car's transmission and saying, wow, both of these things are really interesting on their own. It's like, but when you put them into a car, you can see each one is part of an integrated whole and it serves its purpose not on its own. Like the purpose of a transmission is not to shift gears around, right? The purpose of a transmission is to allow a car to input different amounts of gear speed into a rotating axle with the same amount of energy. And this like next level graduation of understanding was only in like a fraction of a second it came to me. And I went and I immediately started researching similar conversion events because I was internally, I was convinced that this was from God because no kind of like, I'm not that smart. I could never have thought of anything like that on my own. And the proof of that is I had been researching each of these separate things by myself for years and I had come up with nothing. And all of the conversion events that were instantaneous that I could find came along with a similar immediate totalizing insight. And at that point, I was convinced that I had to get all of this on, not necessarily paper, but out there in text that I could show to other people and say, witness the glory of God. Because I had tried for so long using accelerationist tenets of like, oh, this is this is how cybernetics works. And, you know, capitalism is just part of cybernetics. And evolution is just part of cybernetics. And, you know, the, 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 the movement of histories of civilizations is just part of cybernetics. And trying to explain everything through this, like, grand unified theory of the way that energy moves in different ways. Uh, and none of it was cohering to itself. Like it seemed like acceleration had to kind of cope with a an ad hoc solution to every new problem that it came up with. And anybody will tell you, if you have an explanation for every single thing, then either you're talking about magic, which doesn't exist, or you're talking about religion, which is of God. And accelerationism is not a religion. Therefore it's magic and therefore as a system divorced from a creator, it doesn't exist. Well, I've always kind of thought that accelerationism is a sort of techno-scientific complement to Catholicism. I've, I've made this argument before that I think, I, I wonder what your take on it is, that Catholicism and accelerationism have a, a, a sort of strange fit. You're not the only accelerationist, actually, who had a conversion not too long ago, like Vincent Garten, for instance. Vincent Garten is... He also had a, a, a conversion to Catholicism. I was raised Catholic, um, so I wouldn't really call my kind of recent turn towards a more serious Catholicism, a conversion experience. But I think for Vincent, it, 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 it was um, like you're kind of describing it. And uh, I'm, I, really I suspect there are others also. I about Vince Garten's conversion event because I, I didn't realize he had, had something similar to me. And so I'm very... 
Well, I don't know for sure that he had some sort of uh, particular moment of epiphany, but I, if I recall correctly, I don't think he was raised Catholic. So I think it, it was a, it was a fairly, um, you know, significant and uh, how, how should I put it? Sort of d- discrete turn rather than a kind of continuous gradual yes. thing. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is the, the shift from a secular to a religious mindset can only be discrete. That is why faith is so emphasized in scripture and in tradition, because using one's reason, and this actually ties into the next crazy religious thing that happened to me, and I, a crazy spiritual thing that happened to me. Um, using your reason, you cannot arrive at a total understanding of the universe. It's the same problem as trying to explain what came before the Big Bang, right? Oh, it was another universe that collapsed on itself. Well, what came before that one, right? What was the first universe that started this entire thing in motion? What caused any of this infinite chain of universes in your theory to exist in the first place rather than nothing? You know, if it's a if it's a quantum foam in between universes, you know, none of these theories can get beyond their cause effect cause effect chain which rationally speaking based on the way that the universe works must have some cause prior to any other effect and with reason alone we're incapable of even apprehending what that is faith can be and i'm not saying it always is but the 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 start of a life of faith can be as simple as God came before anything else because something must have come before anything else. Something which needed no other thing before it, which has always been even before time. Because even inside of time, we are bounded by cause and effect. Um, And that's, that's kind of a rational. You totally became caveat for saying so. I just thought it's really, uh, I find it very, you know, it speaks to the truth of Catholicism that attempting to define a framework which explains everything else has led so many people to faith. Yeah. Well, the way that I think about it is Catholicism is true. I think accelerationism is true. And accelerationism is, in some sense, the kind of techno scientific realization of the ancient truths of, of Catholicism is, is how I kind of see it. So, you know, obviously the kind of traditional Christian story is that, you know, God created the world and there will be in the kind of Christian eschatology, a, a second coming of Christ and a day of judgment where, you know, everything will be judged and, and put in its, in its proper place. And I kind of see the ideas around superintelligence and increasing AI and these sort of memes as essentially a techno-scientific confrontation with the second coming, essentially. Like, we are, now it's well, rationalists and scientifically sophisticated people who are, under, who, are, who are realizing that actually all of these human affairs, this kind of capitalist machine that humanity has compromised with right the faustian bargain to use another kind of christian register 
these Faustian bargains that we've made with with technology and with materialism, they are now coming home to roost in the form of escalating intelligence that we can't really keep a lid on anymore. And I think the the degree to which rationalists and, and scientific minds are taking the this kind of eschatological structure very serious, uh, you know, on on essentially rational and empirical grounds is essentially a kind of convergence with precisely what the Christian faith has has long taught. What do you think about I, that? I would disagree for two reasons. The first reason is that the proper end goal of civilization is to establish the kingship of Christ on earth. And that is not uh, and, and, and what that means is, uh, for example, um, when Christ appeared to the king of France and he said, I need you to consecrate France to my sacred heart. And what that means is the king comes out publicly and says, I may be the earthly king, but Christ is the heavenly king of France. And the, the sacred heart goes on the flag. And uh, what happens next is, uh, you know, a surprise. So the king of France doesn't do that. It's not known why he doesn't do it, but he doesn't do it. And a hundred years later, to the day, the French Revolution begins. Uh, Peru was consecrated to the Sacred Heart. I believe, oh, I'm not sure what the, uh, what the apparition was. I have a book called enthronement of the sacred heart and it goes into this in great detail but um the point is that christ wants civilization to explicitly acknowledge that authority even of kings is ha has its genesis in the authority of god and uh when accelerationism results in people attempting to seize the reins of the universe and make it go their own way with, for example, a super intelligent AI, which, by the way, is not possible. And I, I, we, can, we can come back to that in a second. Or uh, creating a simulated world where everything is perfect. Or creating super intelligent humans through biomodification and eugenics when any of those things are what accelerationism tells us to do it is exposed as gnosticism uh this which leads me into my second point is that uh the philosopher foglin has this famous phrase don't imminentize the eschaton and so a lot of early accelerationist thought adopted the contrary phrase, imminentize the eschaton. Because why? Because once we establish superintelligent AI, and it's nice to us, we can live like gods in the world that we create. And us super smart people have all of the secret knowledge because we have rationality, and we have mathematics and programming knowledge, and we will be the first ones to ascend, and we will rule as kings over the rest of poor humanity, which is a fundamentally, inalienably Gnostic mindset. 
Yeah, uh, I agree with I agree with all of that. That's consistent with what I was saying. Maybe I made. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm almost done. Oh yeah, please. Um, and so any ideology which attempts to immanentize the eschaton in some way is Gnostic at its core, and Gnosticism is anathema to Catholicism. Hence, Fogelin's famous phrase. And he also spent a great deal of time and effort categorizing some of the most virulent secular ideologies of the 19th and 20th centuries as Gnostic in fundament. Communism, we just have to uplift the people, and the workers' revolution will create the fully automated luxury communist future where we will all live as gods over the, cap- over the poor capitalist nations. Nazism. We just have to create the perfect Ubermensch, and our nation will rule as gods over the other nations of the Untermensch. Nietzschean existentialism. The will to power will allow a nation to ascend, to create the Ubermensch, and rule over the last men of the other nations. Because God is dead, and so we have to become God in place. So, for those two reasons, I believe that accelerationism of any variety other than essentially what I would, what Vince Garten actually very adequately termed black metal Catholicism uh, is Gnosticism and must be discarded with extreme prejudice. I like that. Very well put. I, I pretty much completely agree. And that's kind of what I was alluding to, but perhaps I made myself unclear. I mean, what yeah, I, 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 all I was getting at was uh, that the this kind of secular rationalist acknowledgement of the threat of potentially malign superintelligence takeoff, that that is pretty much the secular rationalist people in an oblique way that they don't fully understand kind of encountering or confronting the 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 results of their own Faustian, heathen, yes. sinful, yes, kind of uh, compromises in in, the, in their own life, in their own mentality, in their own in, in the history of that lineage. Yes. So okay. I, so I yes, have, I must have flipped my. I, I must have heard you saying the opposite thing of what you were actually saying, which is why I responded in such detail. So I apologize for not. No, no, you're no. I, I loved your I loved your uh, rather brilliant kind of uh, explanation of I, of those parallels. I attribute all brilliance to God and all faults to myself. Um, uh, oh, I forgot what I was going to say. Um, man. Oh, yeah. So the, 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 the malevolent superintelligent AI thing is just, you know, rationalist, secular. It, it's, it's Satan who is material now, right? He's an invisible, superintelligent, uh, nigh omnipotent being who hates you and wants you to suffer. That's literally Satan. And the response between rationalism, which is a materialist philosophy and fundamentally Gnostic, and Catholicism is strikingly different. Rationalists will say, oh, well, in the vast majority of futures, we don't manage to defeat Satan, so we're just screwed, and we need to work on the small number of futures where we aren't. In order to, you know, create the new world where we're gods and rule over people, right? Um, 
And the, and the Catholic view is, well, in the end, Satan lost at the start. His prideful denial of the source of all goodness and truth has damned him to an eternity of suffering. And so, in a sense, he has already lost. And all of the evil works that he attempts in the world are just cope, right? Bringing other people down to suffer with him because he can't take it back. And so it's, it's like the difference between a black pill and a white pill, you know? Without faith, you are doomed to black pill until you die because the superintelligence is never going to appear. There's nothing waiting for you after death and everything you do is pointless anyway because entropy will destroy everything you love. So what's the appropriate Catholic attitude towards intelligence and the future of well, intelligence, in particular machine intelligence? I'm really glad you brought that up because just yesterday, I think, or maybe it was the day before yesterday, I had this thought, which was that no matter how smart you are, you can't be smart enough to completely understand yourself and figure out what all of your shortcomings are. So a small child can burn themselves on a stove and they'll feel pain, but they won't necessarily understand that they felt pain because they didn't understand the stove and they need to be more careful about things they don't understand. An adult who is burned in a similar way by something more complicated, say they're in a foreign country, and they miss a bus because the schedule is written in a specific way that's not what they're used to, they would say to themselves, oh, okay, not only was I wrong about bus schedules in this country, but I was wrong about a lot of the infrastructure that runs this country. And so whenever I'm interacting with this country's infrastructure, I need to double check that I know how it works. And as you move up, as, as the person that you're talking about theoretically gains intelligence the mistakes that they make will become more complex harder to understand for people who are less intelligent but they will never go away because no intelligence can ex can transcend the boundaries the finitude like the limit on its own intelligence unless it is actually infinite in which case the only, the only infinitely intelligent thing that is possible is an unbounded intelligence, unbounded in time and unbounded in space, which, I've, which as we've established previously, is God. Right. So you can make the argument, though, that there is a kind of ethical, a positive ethical injunction almost to develop intelligence further and further as a kind of getting closer to God, not necessarily in an arrogant way, not like a Tower of Babel kind of way, but right, one can say precisely because we have this calling to imitate Christ and and to do our best to kind of emulate you know, the, the, the best possible form of ourselves, kind of in the image of God, we are therefore kind of ethically called to increase intelligence and right or no i agree in a very narrow sense we are called to increase the 
intelligence in the most efficient way that we can with the most reliable way that we can. And that is why God instituted the sacrament of marriage because no human invention will ever possess a soul. And I contend that much of the quote unquote intelligence that we see in computers these days is a lot more similar to the Grand Canyon than it is to a human brain. And I can ex uh, I'll explain that in a second, but the single act of creating a child and raising it with a moral understanding and a spiritual understanding will create more intelligence, not only amortized over that child's lifetime, but in that instant of conception than any other human effort in the entirety of the rest of time. Because I believe, well, I don't believe this, but this is a, this is a, this is a fact of theology. The soul has an intellect and a will. Those are two faculties. When at the moment of conception, the soul of the child is infused into the body, and that is pretty much the only creation of intelligence that humans are capable of, and the cultivation of the right use of that intelligence over the child's rearing and adulthood, um, as I've already said, will create more intelligence than any computer could ever hope to simulate, much less actually possess. Because if the intellect is a faculty of the soul, then it's actually impossible for humans to create intelligence in the image of God. We can create things that, like I said, are like the Grand Canyon. Now, why, why do I bring specifically the Grand Canyon up? Well, the Grand Canyon was formed when a large quantity of water flowed across a semi-permeable, uh, sorry, not permeable, an erodible piece of ground. And over a long period of time, some ground was carried away and other ground was left, leaving a complex, very beautiful impression of a great quantity of energy flowing from the start to the finish. A neural network is not intelligent. It is, however, very complex, and it represents a large quantity of energy having flowed through a matrix of zeros, and in some places adding ones. And the end result is something that you can put energy into and get energy out of in the precise shape that you put energy into in the first place. So Google, for example, when they made AlphaGo Zero, uh, sorry, when they made Alpha Zero, I mean, because uh, there's Alpha Go, there's Alpha Go Zero, and then there's Alpha Zero. So when they made Alpha Zero and they trained it on Go to make Alpha Go Zero, they did something a lot like taking the entire Pacific Ocean and running it across the Arizona desert. And they ended up with something that when you put energy into it in the form of Go, you get out a good Go game. But the machine is not thinking. It is simply turning go inputs into go outputs in precisely the way that they asked it to do so. They had to shut down all of their GPUs, which were custom made for training neural networks in every Google server farm and train them only on the game of go for 12 hours. Mm. Other people have tried to train alpha zero on games and the amount of computer time that you need to get a similar amount of training is astronomical. They have crowdsourced infrastructure to you know hundreds of people and with them running full time, it will take them at least a year 
to get a similar, not exact, result. So what I mean by all of this is that a neural network is inert. It does not move of its own accord. Uh, it's essentially a living sculpture, and it does not have the intelligence which is present in the soul, which is made of the image of God's intelligence, which is active. Hmm. So you think the the drive or the dream of a general machine intelligence it's completely that, that, that drive for that is a is a kind of sinful, illusory, gnostic dead end. Yes, it's a com- it's it's a total mirage. It's never going to happen. Not only because intelligence itself is finite, if it is not God's intelligence, and because intelligence cannot actually be created except through the creation of new human souls. Hmm. So the, the people developing or trying to develop general machine intelligence are these satanists or how do we think of these people i think those people need our prayers almost as bad as anybody does because they they have beliefs about the world which are surely harming them in other ways okay now however though i'm sure you can grant that machine intelligence is going to get more and more sophisticated over coming years whether it ever kind of crosses the threshold of human level general intelligence we can dispute and and you you don't buy that at all which is fine but surely it's going to get better over the next few years and in many specific domains machine intelligence will become kind of frighteningly powerful to a degree that we perhaps currently find hard to fathom so as catholics how do we think about this new form of machine intelligence, which will arise, even if it's short of of Mm. true general intelligence, do we owe a kind of uh, a debt of recognition to it for, for the, for the value that intelligence represents, or do we see even in every increase in machine intelligence, a kind of Gnostic satanic uh, demon? Well, the first thing I'd like to say is we we owe no honor to anything which has been created because all, sure. glor- all glory and honor and power are gods now and forever. Amen. Uh, so machine intelligence being a created thing is due no honor from any human soul injustice. Now, if, if machines continue to improve along the axis of simulating human interaction. And I say simulating. I think it is important not to confuse the simulation of a thing with the thing proper. Because, uh, first of all, something which doesn't exist yet or ever we don't know is not do any honor anyway well okay so hang on one second so honor honor is one thing uh maybe we don't need to talk about something so kind of profound as honor but in some sense we it's not totally true that we don't owe anything to 
are man-made things because it, I mean, with respect to intelligence and machine intelligence, you could say that we, we do owe something to the logos, let's say, or to, to truth. And, you know, in the, even just in the commandment, not to lie or, or to, or to always be honest, then in some sense, machine intelligences will in certain domains become more powerful than we are in determining certain truths, certain limited truths about what is the case. And this is a very accelerationist theme that, that one almost has an ethical obligation to whether you want to call it non as, as kind of some of the right-wing accelerationists like to call it, or just intelligence itself that you could even say perhaps the truth itself. One does have to simply face facts and accept whatever is determined by higher forms of intelligence. And in certain domains, there will be machine intelligence that is, let's say, more powerful than my mind to determine a particular uh, answer to a particular question about what is, in fact, the case. In those cases, you know, there's a certain kind of leftist uh, kind of instinct to say, no, 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 it's all that's all that's all not true. That's all fake. We can we can reject what the machines say. But there is another kind of accelerationist attitude, which says we must on some level uh, submit. Uh, I, I was, can you go over the first thing you said again? Because I got lost thinking about something. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm trying to pose this very accelerationist question in a somewhat kind of Christian problematic, the question of how should we relate towards in towards advancing intelligence? Oh, sure. Yes. Advancing machine intelligence. Right. So the fact that a computer will eventually possibly be able to tell us like what the weather is next week um, because we throw a bunch of computing power at it and we throw a bunch of simulations at it. Um, and it produces a material fact. I guess a different example would be good because uh, the future is not yet a fact. But let's, 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 let's assume we had some machine which was very powerful and it ran a bunch of calculations and produced a fact. Well, the fact that it produces is a truth about material reality, which was created by God. And so in some sense, the the acknowledgement of that fact, or the production of that fact, or the discovery of that fact, if it... If it leads people to glorify the machine, which is the means to attaining the fact, rather than God, who was the cause of that fact, and of the machine, and of the materials that created the machine, and of the people who assembled and uh, trained the machine, then we must reject that philosophy out of hand. Which is why uh, I believe that the one sentence version of right accelerationism is we must establish the kingship of Christ on earth. Right. If you think of it in Warhammer 40 K terms, right. Glory be to the God emperor. Right. The, but what's still unclear. And the, the, to me, the million dollar question is, is machine intelligence. Does it in some cases get us closer towards God or move us farther away from God? Because it's, it's, it's easy to see either. That, yeah. Okay. So that's, that's the crux of the arguments. Right. Does machine intelligence get us closer to God? 
one can see arguments on either side. There's the obvious kind of Tower of Babel story where we become infatuated with the results of our own rationality and we think we can build an actual material ladder to heaven itself. And that leads to all types of uh, terrible outcomes because that's an illusory kind of arrogant false attitude that's essentially sinful at its core. But there is another view in which many of our institutions and conventions historically are themselves the result of deceptive, deceitful, Faustian bargains, a kind of weird, uh, agglomerated combination of truth and lies and various kinds of social compromises, and that increasing machine intelligence is a kind of washing away of a lot of kind of human sinful fluff, you could say. So one way to pose the question in a, with a concrete example, for instance, would be to look at something like Bitcoin versus traditional fiat systems. Is Bitcoin closer to God or farther away from God than a traditional fiat system? My instinct wants to say that Bitcoin is closer to God than uh, our, our pre-Bitcoin fiat systems because it's, it's, its consistency is more rigorous. It's kind of truth value in some sense is more rigorous and disciplined and it actually contains and constrains our sinful heathen tendencies to lie and to you know counterfeit what do you think i think that that is a dangerous argument because we live in a fallen world and all the efforts of man unless they are undertaken through God and in God are doomed to failure in a certain sense. And this is why bureaucracy and war and pestilence and such things are all an issue. Like there's no, there's no grand unified theory of cybernetics for why people are jerks to each other in the prisoner's dilemma. Uh, It's not the sophistication of our technology, which brings us closer to God. Um, it is, it's the sophistication of our technology is almost completely orthogonal to our, uh, our righteousness and our virtue. Like there are, there are, there are, there are scores, hundreds of, I mean, you know, much more than hundred billions of virtuous people who died never knowing what a computer was. They're more virtuous than you or me. And they, despite the poverty of their surroundings, they, uh, lived a holy life and were charitable and loving towards their neighbor and engaged in prayers every day. And so if there's anything that technology has done, and I think this is where we tie into the answer of does machine intelligence bring us closer to God? If there's anything that technology has done I think it's actually made it easier for people to adopt these Gnostic in disguise philosophies that boil down to it is what we do and what we create that makes us special and good. Um, and, you know, the, the, the fact that half or more than half of all the 
packets that enter the United States internet connection are streaming pornography, I think is a testament to the fact that technology only makes the falling affairs of man more efficient. Um, it doesn't make the fallen affairs of man more holy. Uh, mm. And so the fact that, and I'm going to quote scripture here, if you please forgive me, ye shall know them by their fruits. What are the people who believe in machine intelligence currently doing? And I'm, this is not a dig at any person in particular, but if I believe that the future has been captured by a malevolent AI or a benevolent AI and the ultimate goal of civilization is to enter into this machine of hedonism, then I'm going to live like a hedonist in the now. I'm going to have utilitarian ethics. I'm not going to be accountable for any of my actions in private or my moral rectitude. I'm only going to make public gestures of charity to improve my reputation because I'm vain. Uh, I'm going to work on the problem that I see is most relevant because in my pride, I believe I have the solution to all of humanity's problems. And I have no reason to refuse any of the appetites of my flesh, whether it's pornography or food or sexual license. Um, because it's not bad to indulge your passions because you have your passions. And if you have a thing, surely it means that you evolved to enjoy those things because they're good. And enjoyment is the only thing that matters. So I'm actually a great person because I get home and the first thing I do is I log on to the computer and download a video of some poor person being abused for my enjoyment. Um, so that's my kind of that's my kind of one two punch on okay why now, why the machine intelligence does not bring us closer to God. Now, what about capitalism? Because I would assume, as a right accelerationist, you're somewhat favorable towards capitalism. But is capitalism not a kind of decentered so when you, hum, when you, human form of machine intelligence? When you say capitalism, do you mean specifically? the economic structure of the United States, or do you mean the generic flow of energy and value through an economy? I suppose the latter. Okay. Uh, that's good because that's the one that I'm interested in talking about. Right accelerationism, as I see it, is most interested in the... Harnessing of the physics of civilization, right? the science of civilization, the philosophy of civilization, of which capital is a component, in order to, as I said before, establish the kingship of Christ on earth. How do we structure a nation or a set of nations in order to most glorify God. And this isn't like, you know, a church on every block where people are mandated to go pray. It's each person is engaged 
in the proper fulfillment of their state in life. Now, this is an, this is a this is a loaded term. I, you know, I have a music label. I'm kind of a personality. I have a job. You know, um, I have a wife. All of these things are not who I am, but they're where I am. And so each of these things, as I perform my duties to each of them, to the best of my ability, for God's sake, because he has given me these things to do, gives God the most glory. Because, you know, on the, in, 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 the, in, the, in the six months before my wedding, I was thinking, you know, I could go be a monk. I could go do this. And all these crazy thoughts that were completely contrary to my state in life. You know, God gave me a fiance who I love very much and got me thinking about marriage and lots of friends and an interesting, uh, you know, place to live and a nice place to raise kids. And so even if I had gone and said, okay, sweetheart, I know I love you. I know you love me, but I have to leave you now because, you know, I got to go give glory to God. I'm going to go be a monk somewhere. That actually, like, it really goes against the grain. It rubs the wrong way against where I was put in this world, what I was given when I was put in this world, and the plan that God has for how I can most glorify him. And so this is all just to say that, for example, a France which had been consecrated to the Sacred Heart of Jesus wouldn't look like some kind of totalitarian regime. It looks no different than the absolute height of human civilization. Hmm. And it doesn't have any machine intelligence necessarily. Now, it could be that since we have computers, since we have the ability to make very sophisticated computer programs that look like Grand Canyons, some future civilization incorporates a significant amount of machine intelligence. And this is not the intelligent faculty of the soul, which can only be created by God. But we have these subroutines, these tasks, which we have delegated to machines. It's entirely possible that the height of civilization from now looking forward incorporates machine intelligence in some way. But it definitely does not mean that the way to reach that civilization is by maximizing machine intelligence. Okay. Okay. Now, do you think that a collective of Christians and Christian hackers could perhaps succeed, succeed, like succeed, not succeed, from, let's say, a country such as the United States, set up a set up a patch, if you will, uh, somewhere somewhere <laughs> in the mountains, maybe maybe in Texas, yeah. and essentially program a program the kingdom of Christ on Earth. The thorny issue with secession is that it takes you out of all of the networks that you currently have influence over. Hmm. And this is a hard problem because a lot of people who want to change the way things are think that they can do that by leaving things 
and making their own things out somewhere else. Mm. And the problem that they all seem to have is that they can't get things to come to them Mm. because they weren't content to put their head down, go to their regular job and do what God asked them to do. Right. But surely you're not uh, pushing people to, to engage in a just kind of naive submission to whatever they happen to find themselves in. Right. I mean, surely you embrace thoughtful, conscientious, decisive action to live a better life, be a better person in certain domains. Right. So I certainly see what you're saying, but it can't be as simple as just submission to whatever you find yourself in. It's not as simple as submission to the world. It is as simple as submission to Christ. But sometimes you have to secede from something to submit better to Christ. Like, like when I seceded from academia, for instance, like, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm half jesting, but only half jesting. I mean, I, I genuinely think that that decision I made with my, with my life, which in some sense was a, a kind of conscious, a conscious dereliction of a certain set of duties. Uh, I did it very consciously and yeah. in a way that I think, I do think that I'm living a better life, a more yeah. ethical life, a more yeah. Christian life outside of saying- academia than inside of it, for instance. I'm to not give saying you a kind that of case study. Stayed in academia. I'm not saying that at all, because mm. clearly it wasn't good for you, and you didn't like it, and it wasn't it wasn't like a virtuous exercise. It wasn't edifying you. Um, but there's definitely a critique one could say from the outside. One could absolutely say, Justin, that was just you being immature and selfish and lusting after some sort of greener pasture that doesn't exist for your own personal, uh, you know, frivolous, childish interests and you should have just kept the good job you had kept a good salary you had and have babies and responsible be a responsible father and husband you could definitely make that critique of what i perhaps i was just kind of pursuing selfish interests right um well the annoying answer is that it's usually a case-by-case thing sure but the silver lining is that god is a case-by-case god he knows exactly who you are because he made you He knows exactly where you are because he puts you there and he knows exactly what you need because he understands you better than you ever could. And the process of making decisions about what to do with one's life comes after submission to Christ. So that's kind of the, that's kind of, I know it seems like I'm kind of weaseling out of answering your question here. No, it's a difficult one. I was just curious if you had a heuristic for how to know which side of that you're on. uh, The heuristic is essentially that God will let you know. Yeah, I think you could even say the heuristic is it's faith itself. You have to you have to be, you have to genuinely believe what you believe and there's no ultimate kind of grounding or proof for it, but you have to you have to take a leap of faith uh, right. essentially on yeah, and, and yes, it, it is this I kind mean, of it is this kind of rationally unsatisfying answer. It, it's it, and it's that's not the thing, a, yes. It's not it's not containable inside of reason. Because faith itself is the highest act of reason. You have to to summon all of the reason at your disposal in order to realize the essentialness of faith. Yeah, that's good. That's right. 
Yeah. Yeah. Because, and, and this kind of ties into uh, a the other article that I wrote of a spiritual nature called Confrontation with a Basilisk, where I uh, go into some detail about how exactly I was presented with this dilemma of faith is something that reason cannot incorporate. It has to happen on its own outside. Um, Because I was, I was confronted with this dilemma that could not be solved with reason. And there was Christ on one side of the dilemma and there was the world on the other and myself on the other, the pursuit of the world and the pursuit of my own self, my interests on the other side. Right. And the dilemma was presented to me in such a way that I thought about it and I thought about it and I thought about it and I couldn't figure out, I couldn't figure out, right? I couldn't apply my intelligence to the problem and come up with a solution because it spiraled in on itself in a mirror image mm-hmm of the problem every time I applied my intellect to the next level of the problem. Mm -hmm. And I realized that the only way out of this was to escape from my assumption that I could figure everything out. I needed faith in God. And once I realized that the dilemma exploded, it, it, it collapsed. It was no longer even a dilemma to me. It was a simple, statement right now something you didn't quite answer though is how should the catholic accelerationist see capitalism oh sure you could see that either way right is there a kind of christian anti-capitalist imperative to no uh capitalism is a thing that happens when people in a large group have money and need to use it and the way that they do those things is part of the study of capitalism and the way that they do those things can inform the specification of our future civilization, which will not be perfect, right? Because the second coming hasn't happened yet, but it will be, it will acknowledge the kingship of Christ. And this is, you know, spoiler alert, uh, heaven is a monarchy. So if you want a Catholic form of government, look no further. Um, it's right. A, it but, is, it's right. not even a tool, right? It is a property of a, a network of agents with value. And studying that property of the universe that God created is useful insofar as it brings civilization closer to God. Okay. Now, though, in some sense, at a certain level of its development, at a, at a certain stage of advanced capitalism, such as the one we have now, mm-hmm. in a relatively free market country such as the United States, you can make a, a reasonable case that on some level, capitalism decides who lives and who dies at certain margins. And and some people make a kind of Christian socialist argument that this is unconscionable and that, 
just because uh, someone has very low human capital and is unable to earn on the market the resources they need to eat or something like that doesn't mean that that's uh, acceptable and and that therefore any true Christian should be devoting as much effort as possible to essentially uh, right the wrongs of the capitalist distribution. I would say that that's a problem with civilization and not necessarily a problem with the way that civilizations use money. Mm. And so the issue is with justice, giving what is due to the needy and the organization of how the government gathers value and uses value rather than the way that that value moves in certain types of bounded systems. So are you, you're, are you supportive of a re, a fairly redistributive tax system then for instance, or right? Because it sounds like, it sounds like what you're saying is that um, a good civilization will have uh, a, a series of arrangements that are going to make uh, the ultimate distribution more equitable or something like that. Uh, some Catholics have created distributism. Right. Uh, I think G.K. Chesterton being one of them. Uh, and Jesus said, feed the hungry, clothe the needy, care for the sick, visit the imprisoned. I forget the other one because I'm not a good Catholic. But there is clearly some element of welfare in the Catholic civilization whether that element is the primary economic goal is dubious because I'm not sure that you need to spend that much on welfare, even at the margin. Uh, and the reason that we currently have to spend so much on it is because of misallocation of resources and rent-seeking in that sector. Okay, sure. So, uh, in a, right. So, so in a good, yeah, in, in a yes. good civilization, people yes. with money will take care of people who don't yes. have money. Absolutely. It won't be. And the, there won't even, there should not even be a need for an intermediary between the rich and the poor because the rich right. in a Catholic society will have Catholic morals. And you used to see this all the time before things started to go south. People Rich people would just buy a big old abandoned warehouse and set up a hospital there for the sick. And they would pay out of pocket for the care of these people because mm-hmm. they made stupid amounts of money on the railroads or whatever. And they just spent it on the community. And because they had love in their hearts for their neighbor and for God and in charity They desired to give of what they had for Hmm. God's sake and for the sake of their neighbor. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, uh, I mean, I made the argument that I think back in the day, there used to be like in the days of noblesse oblige, there used to be more kind of aristocratic elite paid communism, essentially, because in part, because the, the, the aristocrats got more credit for it, right? They, They, they were seen as nobles, right? They were seen as actually noble in return for their uh, no, generosity, essentially. Whereas nowadays, 
when rich people give money, they get no credit kind of like they're still seen as dirt bags. Like Jeff Bezos yeah. gives, like I saw an article a few days ago, something like uh, Jeff Bezos gave like several millions of dollars to something. And the article oh, yeah. was just about how small a percentage that several <laughs> millions was of, his total, of his total earnings. I know. So it, it's just kind of, I, what I think is going on now is that pretty much the, the super rich have no real reason, like the social structural, the social structural basis for traditional patronage and noblesse oblige, which yeah. is a kind of primitive form of organic kind of communism in some sense. Ha- yeah. The social structure for that has been obliterated because rich people are, they generally are hated by the masses, no matter how much they give anyway. So they're like, I'm not really going to give that much. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, and the, and the focus on the self, you know, how can I benefit from this, from giving to people, you know, how can I increase my reputation? Like that's already a sign that the end, is it like the downfall is at hand, right? And like the whole French Revolution just put the nail in the coffin. Well, you're going to be rich. We hate you anyway. So, you know, uh, all you who have authority, you don't get it anymore because we don't want authority. And, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's all, no, to, to, to use the Hebrew, yeah. fakata, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, this is why I've argued for like what I call aristocratic communism, where it's a, it's a kind of interesting affirmation of capitalism and communism because i think what you can say is yes we should have the most economically productive system possible which is obviously capitalism let people make as much money as they can let there be a super rich and don't have any kind of you know uh corrupt rent-seeking welfare state but just let's all agree to give the rich a lot of social credit like let's if they if they redistribute right like if the super rich spend a lot of money to give us free shit then let's really love them for it. Let's like really respect them and admire them for their generosity. Let's actually make well, them noble. I, let's make them nobles again. Let's, let's treat them like aristocrats. And then just, on condition that they, they take care of everyone. Let's, let's, let's caveat that for a second. Let's love God for the charity of our neighbor that he instilled in them. Right. The end of that love is not like, Oh man, I love getting stuff or sure. I love it when the rich people buy me stuff. It's like, I'm sure. so happy that God said, whatever you did to the least of my brethren, you did to me. And whatever you did not do to the least of my brethren, you did not do to me. I'm so yeah. grateful that he said that so that rich people realize, oh man, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to get into the kingdom of heaven. So I got a lot of work to do and I got to help my fellow people out because they're just people and money. You know, it's just stuff. And I don't really have a use for it beyond feeding, clothing, and taking care of my family. And so, like, that's that's kind of more the mindset that I think, like, we shouldn't really do anything without its end in God. Because it's just a recipe for disaster. Yes, that's always a fine caveat to add yeah. to anything. Yeah. Well put. Yeah. Um, yeah, so... So, I, in I, other words, I'm praying... For Jeff Bezos, I'm praying, Jeff. <laughs> yeah. I, Jeff, I'm praying that you find God and decide to give me a mansion so that I can <laughs> devote myself all the all the more gloriously to God. Yeah, we'll we'll workshop it. You know, uh, <laughs> I I don't know. Jeff Bezos does need our prayers, as do Elon Musk. You know, Kanye West, all those big, all those big like. Oh, definitely. Well, I'm, I'm definitely people. praying for Grimes' baby. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it's funny what you said before that if the creation of human life is actually the greatest 
gift you can give to the advancement of intelligence, then I think Elon and Grimes kind of yeah. realized like they're this already super, on their this, way this to super intelligent super intelligence. Yeah, they decided like this, <laughs> these super intelligent machines. It's kind of taking too long. Let's just produce a baby. Yeah, and, yeah. And my hats off to them. Best I of mean, luck to them, and uh, I, I'll, I'm, I'm praying for their their child <laughs> and their conversion. Yes, and their conversion. Well, I was making the argument the other day that I, like maybe Grimes is going to become a kind of like uh, pro life symbol. Oh yeah. You know, because she's like pretty young. She's the type of like girl who, you know, could reasonably say, oh, I want to have an abortion. I want to focus on my career, you know, but she's like, no, she's all on Tumblr, like posting pictures of her baby bump. I'm hoping that she's going to become a kind of icon of, of, of pregnancy and natalism. Right. I mean, she's making it cool. She's making it glamorous. That's what what I'm saying. The thing is, the important thing is, right. Elon Musk is filthy, stinking rich. Grimes is a beautiful young musician whose creations are across the globe and everybody loves them. They have all the fame and fortune that they could possibly want separately, not even together. And together they have 10 times as much. And once they were together with each other, what did they do? They realized that all the fame and fortune in the world isn't worth a thing compared to the happiness that a child can bring. You know, when they or or he just forgot to pull out and here we are. (laughs) I mean, she's making the child public, so I don't know. I don't know how accidental it really was. No, I'm sure Uh, they came to that awakening that you described. Absolutely. I mean, God works in mysterious ways, so maybe they'll come to this awakening after raising the child. But all of that stuff, all those material things pass away. Right. Entropy, heat death of the universe, no matter what you do. It's going to go away in the end. One thing you can't ever undo is having a child. The soul will always exist. And if it gets, if, if a child happens to, to, to pass before you do, then, you know, if they're in heaven, they're praying for you until you're up there too. And I mean, there's, there's no more precious gift you can give to God after your own life of sacrifice than another soul in his kingdom, right? You have to people the city of God. Um, and wow. even if Elon Musk and Grimes haven't realized that, they have, I think, and this is just my impression, not been entirely satisfied with fame and fortune, right? They found each other. They like each other more than they like fame and fortune. And now they're having a baby. And God willing, they'll realize that that baby is worth more than money can ever buy. Beautiful thing. Yeah. Well, this is pretty deep, man. This was cool. I, I'm sorry to get so deep, but this is just the... No, it's cool. <laughs> this is just what's on my mind. Sorry. It's fun. Yeah. Was there anything else that you wanted to talk about before we... Like, I don't want to keep you too long. Uh, but was there anything else you had in mind that you wanted to kind of get on the air? I think I'm good. <laughs> Any uh, last insights from about the, uh, about the online music industry? There's not a lot of money in it. Uh, unless you make it really big in some mysterious way that I haven't figured out. Mm. Um, if you want to consult as a manager or a marketer for love Crips, we should talk. 
Oh, Facebook ads are pretty good. Oh yeah, they work success. well. I've had some success with Facebook ads. Yeah. Hmm. Selling um, what individual tracks or how, what do you sell on Facebook ads? Albums. Oh, okay. I would put up ads for albums. Interesting. Um, how much yeah. does an album go for on your label? Most of them are pay what you want. Oh. Uh, some artists request that I charge money. Typically, it's three or four dollars for an EP and seven dollars for an album. Okay. But pay what you want. Typically, uh, there's a there's a set of like one to five dollar purchases, and then there's a couple like ten to twenty dollar purchases. So, Bandcamp claims that four dollars gets you the most bang for your buck in terms of, you know, turning people away versus not. But again, I'm not interested in the profit motive because I believe that it fundamentally corrupts the art. Mm. And I, like I don't it. need the money anyway. I'm just, I'm just trying to give the artists their due, right? I like and it. Any, do, you any, have, yeah. do you have any advice for young aspiring musicians trying to carve out space for themselves on the internet? Uh, you can't do it on your own. Find a wave and ride it. If you have music... Odds are 10 to 1 that I will publish it and I will pay you nicely for it. Any uh, style though? Don't you have a certain kind of style? I do have a certain kind of style, but I will make a principled exception if I like it. And so the, the really the end, the end result is if I like it, I'll publish it. I don't constrain myself to a certain style. Every, every album on Lovecrypt either meets the criteria of style or it meets the criteria of I like it or it meets both. Mm. Um, so, I mean, if you want to, if you want to get like a start, send it my way. My Twitter is lovecryption. So it's L-O-V-E-C-R-Y-P-T-I-O-N. Um, the, the handle lovecrypt was taken. Uh, I recently changed it away from the hex number that it used to be. Um, and just send me a DM and we'll talk. Cool. That's a nice offer. Anyone yeah. out there? Take, take him up on that. Uh, all right, dude. Well, this was cool. We covered a lot of ground. It was really interesting. Uh, I think I think I'm good if you're good. And uh, I'm good. thank you so much for having me on here. I love I love talking to like I, I love talking to all the people online because like everyone's everyone's so smart and they have their own perspective on stuff and they just ask they have such interesting questions to get through and like you know I I think I think more people should do this with more people. Yeah, I love it. It's fun. And you were a good guest. It was good to, good to get to know you better. And uh, it went down some, went down some pathways I wasn't necessarily yeah, expecting. Yeah. So I think I'm, yeah. I think I'm going to end up titling this like black metal Catholic accelerationism or something. Black like metal that. Catholicism, Warhammer 40k in real life. <laughs> something like that. Yeah. yeah, no, this is, this is good stuff. Good, good food for thought. I appreciate yeah. your, yeah. I appreciate your perspective and you definitely, cause I'm still, th- I'm still I'm like, I'm not a good Catholic at all by any means. <laughs> uh, and I, I haven't, there's so many loose ends in my own kind of perspective that I haven't really tied up, um, but as a person who's generally kind of in the accelerationist camp and who is a Catholic, uh, yeah. you definitely you definitely made a lot of points that I'll be I'll be reflecting on for a little while. Yeah. So I appreciate yeah. that. Well, the bright side is it's not hard to be a good Catholic. Well, it is and isn't. You know, that's true. It's a good point. Stay in a state of grace. Go to confession. Receive the Eucharist on Sundays in the state of grace, and God will work out the rest. You know, regular sure. prayer. Yeah. That's a good point. It's not hard to be a basically good Catholic, the base, but I'm not, I'm not a particularly easy. impressive one is what I mean. Yeah. Well, God isn't asking for us to be impressive. Right? That's true. That's true. Yeah. That's the, the, the little flower 
of Jesus, uh, St. Therese of Lisieux was big on that, you know, in a garden, you have a lot, you have, you have a couple impressive flowers. You have a lot of kind of, you know, okay flowers. And then you have some really tiny flowers that really round, round the edges out, you know, tie the whole thing together. And, you know, St. Therese saw herself as like one of these just little flowers on the edge that God loves just as much as the big ones. And Lovely. there's there's really a dignity in being the best little flower that you can be without trying to be something that you're not. You know, we can't all be Elon Musk. We can't all be Kanye West. But we can do the best that we can with what we have. Well put. Thank you very much. Hey, thanks thank for coming you, on. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, I'll, I'll see you around. I'll stay in touch with you, man. Thank, thanks again for coming on. It was cool. God bless. God bless Bye-bye. you. Take it easy. All right, everybody. Other Life Podcast. The best podcast for learning about interesting, weird, creative people on the internet. Thanks for hanging out. As always, please do subscribe to the podcast. Get it on your phone so you can listen to this later at the gym when you're doing a Cures workout routine, doing uh, dumbbell presses instead of barbell presses because you don't want to mess up your rotator cuff. It's hard to listen to things on YouTube. So uh, yeah, get the podcast. It's called Other Life. You should be able to find it. And if you like it, leave a review. I'd really appreciate that. It helps people find it. helps it kind of come up higher in search results. And a few weeks back, I got an influx of negative reviews from my viral tweet. Just people who didn't even listen to the podcast, just going on it and giving it one-star reviews just to spite me. So please go make up for that and uh, give it an honest review, which is obviously a five-star review with very positive words. Thanks, folks. Uh, There's going to be an event in LA. This is happening. It's really happening. If you want to come to the based mansion, I'm literally renting a mansion for a weekend from Feb- from Friday, February 28th to Sunday, March 1st. There's going to be a mansion in LA and you can come to it if you want to. There's just a little form you have to fill out to request an invitation. It's only going to be able to have like 20 spots probably. Uh, so yeah, it's going to be a first come first serve kind of thing. As long as you have something to offer, you know, and you're like a real person and you're not a serial killer. And then, uh, yeah, the first 20 people will be welcomed. Uh, there is a price, obviously I'm not like paying it for it out of my pocket. Um, but I've set up a fairly, I think, equitable pricing system so that people who have plenty of money can have a nice private room to themselves for, um, you know, a relatively high price. But if you're broke and you just want to come out for the weekend to a weird, conference slash retreat thing in a nice house in LA with me and whoever else shows up. Um, there's like a cheaper option for just, uh, I think like a hundred bucks roughly. None of this is settled yet. Oh, Akira, you're still here. Uh, apparently yes. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So there's price points for everyone. It tried to make it a very kind of communist structure. So the people who have a lot of money will pay more and the people who don't have a lot of money, uh, should be able to come out. So yeah, the, if you look at one of my tweets, I literally just posted it before this live stream. So if you want to come to the base mansion, come check that out. Uh, just apply on that link at the tweet. And uh, yeah, there's also going to be a live podcast show the night that that begins on Friday, the 28th. There'll be a live podcast in LA and then a little bit of an after party for the base Deleuze paperback launch. So it's going to be dope. I have a man on the ground. Shout out Barrett Avner of the art duo uh, Contain. He's my man on the ground helping me book venues and stuff. This is happening. It's all happening. So uh, yeah, if you're anywhere in the LA area, hit me up.
come to one of these things or both of these things, it's going to be a, a, a wild weekend, I think. So yeah, let me know if you have any questions or whatever. All right, folks, subscribe, you know, all that stuff, like the channel, subscribe to the podcast. Otherwise, I'm out of here and I'll see you in a week. Oh, next week, I'm going to be on with Chris Gabriel of the YouTube channel called Meme Analysis. And then a week or two after that, I'm going to be on with Ayla, spelled Ayla. You might know her. She's in like the rationalist sphere. She's a quirky, interesting, smart, uh, very creative internet person. Uh, so that'll be in a couple of weeks. All right, everyone. I'm out of here. Thanks for hanging out as always. Oh, and big shout out to my patrons. Thank you, patrons. Very grateful. God bless you all. See you next week. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you thought that was cool, then don't forget to subscribe. And it would be even cooler if you left a review. I'd appreciate that. And yeah, just to learn more about what I'm up to, you can check out theotherlifenow.com. That's all. And I will see you around the internet.